0: Hello and welcome to episode nine of the Mother Kind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. This episode is with Anya Hayes, aka Mother's Wellness Toolkit. Anya is a health and well-being writer and a Pilates teacher specialising in pregnancy and postnatal. She's also the author of two awesome books, her first one, Pregnancy, The Naked Truth, and her latest book, The Supermum Myth. And he also has a brilliant Instagram, which you should go and check out, at Mothers Wellness Toolkit, where she does daily posts on what's honestly going on for her and her parenting journey, inspiration, and loads of great tools on how to navigate the challenges of motherhood. I really enjoyed our chat. I think Anya and I could have chatted for hours. There was so much I wanted to talk to her about. We talk about the danger of expectations
1: You see yourself in your life before you have children in a certain way and you kind of assume that you're going to be able to carry on and meet challenges in the same way that you've met your work challenges or your education challenges in life.
0: Tools for staying calm during a toddler meltdown. I always envisage a kind of
1: pause button and I literally stop what I'm doing, whatever it is, and I just take a breath.
0: Control, listening to our instincts and our relationship with technology. I think
1: because we have
0: this lovely, amazing
1: technology in the palm of our hand that has revolutionized so many things and made so many things much better, has also allowed us to just be distracted from our actual lives.
0: I came away from my chat with Anya an even deeper appreciation of how challenging motherhood and, in particular, early motherhood is. And uh, it just reaffirmed to me the importance of having some tools in our toolkit to enable us to really enjoy those early days and the journey rather than being in survival mode all the time. So I really hope you enjoy our chat. If you did, then please pop over to Instagram at motherkind.co and leave a comment or on iTunes or SoundCloud. Here it is. So Annie, welcome to the Mother Kind Podcast. Thanks I'm for so me. excited to have you here. So we first met last year, wasn't it, in at the Lucky Things South London meet-up. Yeah. We did, we did. And then I read your book and I just absolutely loved it. I just wish that I'd have read it when I was pregnant. I thought, why don't they give this out at NCT? Oh, that's <laughs> so sweet
1: of you. I do have a pregnancy book, actually, which doesn't delve quite so much into the mental health of it. But yeah, I do think that it's one of those things that when you're pregnant, to be slightly more prepared for the journey ahead, it might equip us a bit better for the mental health trials that face you when you're a mother.
0: It talks about it in the book. I did that classic thing where... Because I wanted a home birth, I read everything that there was to yeah. know about birth. I, yeah. Honestly, my knowledge was off the scale yeah. on birth. I didn't know anything about once the baby arrived yeah. or how that might affect me. I yeah. was totally clueless.
1: I think that's the thing we see. We see the birth we, as big capital letters is like this big event that you then win a medal and. You know, the motherhood thing is actually the longer lasting activity that you're then going to have to do. I remember Clemmie Hooper, mother of daughters on Instagram, she said that everyone talks about the birth, but there's actually no epidural for motherhood. So you you might have to think about that a bit more carefully. I think there is a changing tide, but at the moment I do think there's so much build up for the birth, which in itself is quite challenging because then, you know, you set quite a gold standard for what you're looking to achieve and if you haven't achieved that then your motherhood journey starts off on the back foot you feel like you're kind of already not achieving something as well as you could have done which is not really what we should be doing when we're starting off on this kind of very epic journey of motherhood I
0: totally agree it's that word expectations isn't it the expectation that I had of my birth and I was one of the lucky ones and that I did have the birth that I wanted but I don't know how I would have handled it if those expectations weren't met and then expectations of motherhood and how, and you talk about it in the book so brilliantly of this warm yes. glow and yeah. this suckling baby at our bosom and actually the, the reality. Of
1: I think that's the greatest hurdle for everyone is that all of the women that I interviewed and talked to generally and even not related to the book they all say you know why does no one tell you all of this you know and it's that I think also the challenge of you see yourself in your life before you have children in a certain way and you kind of assume that you're going to be able to carry on in that certain way and meet challenges in the same way that you've met your work challenges or your education challenges in life, you know, with a little bit of planning, things will go the way that you want them to go. And the fact that once you become a mother, that control is kind of no longer there in the same way. And to feel like actually, you know, you have to roll with the punches a little bit more. And if your expectation is that you will be organised and calm and patient and crafty and always baking cakes with your child. And then to realise when you're in the moment that actually it's all a bit chaotic and messy. And maybe your baby doesn't want to go to baby yoga with you and your child doesn't want to bake muffins it's like, oh, wow, I have this picture in my mind and I'm failing because it's not like that. And actually, that's the thing. It's that expectation. We need to learn how to be a bit softer on ourselves in terms of the visions, what we want to achieve. It's absolutely okay if it's not how we picture it.
0: I love that idea of the control. If I think about myself you know certainly pre getting into focusing on my well-being and my recovery I used control Mm. as a tool to feel safe
1: yeah and I think
0: a lot of us do and I think one of the huge challenges of becoming a mother is that doesn't work anymore Mm. and actually we're totally powerless over this little person that comes in and who they are and what they want to do and And then what that brings up in us and what it brought up in me, you know, I've talked about that and I know you talk about it in the book and that's why I think it can be such a trigger for anxieties, fears, worries, absolutely, you know, through to PND and, and even more extreme things that it can. Oh, definitely. And what you said about
1: having the control, learning about your little person, it sounds a bit silly, but it was a real shock for me that my baby could be so different from me like you know my eldest son particularly is very different in kind of temperament to me and that was such a shock because I had no kind of sort of way of dealing or or no instinctive way of understanding his character I had to learn it and get to know him and I think we sort of fed this feeling that when you have a baby this is your baby and you know all about your baby and it's less understood that actually you need to learn and get to know your baby it's a whole entire new person that you've created and you don't have control over what that person's emotional responses are you have to learn and be guided by your baby rather than sort of be able to control and determine exactly how your baby is going to react and I think that again when we are anxious and are feeling low self-confidence and low self-efficacy of sort of feeling oh, I'm not very good at this we then look to experts or forums or books to give us the answers and when they don't provide the right answers for our child we sort of feel like we're doing the wrong thing and actually it's maybe that those experts or that answer on the forum isn't applicable to what your emotional needs of your particular child who is a whole new person on its own you know so I think it's a real learning curve and we're so divorced from our kind of it takes a village type mentality and we don't have all the kind of information and guidelines and guidance that used to come from the kind of mothers and aunts and sisters and neighbours in the community it is there to a certain extent but I think we have become quite distanced from that in our modern particularly in city life and I think that's sort of an avenue that anxiety can grow as well when you feel so detached from this kind of mother's instinct or knowing exactly what to do with your child and we just think I'm so lost I'm like a fish out of water I thought being a mother would be really natural and actually it's really scary and you know what do I do and it's learning how to sort of grow with that and be at ease with the fact that it's like a new job. You will have to learn it on the job. You know? You're know, you not going to suddenly be able to know what to do as a mum. But I think we kind of expect to be able to mum without any guidance. And it's the right kind of guidance. You know, You need that right scaffolding, which is applicable to your circumstances and to your baby. And to be able to then follow your gut instinct about, OK, My baby is clearly a baby who needs a bit more attachment, who needs to be worn on my chest all the time. He's not happy being put down. It's okay. I don't have to put him down for a nap all the time. But when we kind of hear, your baby must be put down for a nap every day, you sort of feel like you're failing if you're not able to do that. And it's actually, we should be celebrating the fact that you're thinking, actually, my baby doesn't want to do that. That's okay. But I think the emotional framework of a new mum is so there's so much going on we do lose that sight objectively of how well we're doing Mm. and I think that's the point of the book is to kind of give you just that little objective pat on the back and like you're actually doing okay it's just you need to start seeing how well you're doing and not question everything quite so much because I think that's the thing when you become a mum suddenly we're just so open to judgments from other people that we start losing sight of anything that we might feel confident in in our decisions i totally you know.
0: agree i talk about that a lot and part of the reason i started mother kind is because i saw how difficult those early days and you know through the whole journey i'm sure but <laughs> i was emotionally depleted physically exhausted yeah Giving my power away, as you talked about, to books, other people. I've never experienced more opinion in my life than when I was carrying a newborn around. And then to have that strong sense of self and strong centre is actually a skill that is really challenging to hold on to. Absolutely. When I had my home birth, you know, I felt really confident that's what I wanted to try for. Mm. The amount of people... Who openly told me why would I risk my life, my yeah. baby's life, yeah. if I had been any less strong in myself, that would have rocked me. Yeah, would have wavered, yeah, yeah, I would have wavered. and yeah. it was only because I'd done so much research and reading, but I hadn't done that about mm. being a mum. Mm. So all that stuff <laughs> did rock me and waver me. Yeah, and you know, but also the being a mum research
1: is really tricky. Again, I think it's changing. Social media has a lot of positive influence in that respect. All we used to have was the kind of Gina Ford type parenting manuals which are quite rigid and very structured and they don't add any nuance for different types of emotional responses to things and I read The Baby Whisperer before I had (laughs) Morris and I remember thinking yeah it sounds really simple so you put your baby down you have some time for you and then the baby sleeps and like it's the easiest thing in the world that you put your baby down and the baby will just sleep without patting or touching or you know and then when you have your baby and it's like hang on a minute my baby doesn't do the put down thing my baby freaks out when I ever stop touching him and you think oh there must be something wrong with me rather than it must be the book that's not Giving me the guidance that my baby requires. And I think for me, it was that initial start of the journey where feeling like I was doing it wrong, in inverted commas. And I think that feeling, you can carry it with you unless you start to build the confidence, which I think you do ultimately. But like you say, it's the exhaustion, you know, the lack of sleep initially and general kind of exhaustion and physical depletion of motherhood just really depletes your ability to respond confidently to circumstances. And we should all be offered the tools for just noticing how when you're exhausted, your responses are going to be more emotional rather than rational. You just need a little bit of kindness and no societal judgment, please, on decisions that you make. It's really, really hard. I think that new moms should all be given some element of kind of mental health Resource, you know, when we've had a baby, just to understand how you can protect yourself and just give yourself a little bit of a hug and a cloak of resilience to get you through. Because I do think it gets easier. That first, you know, let's quantify it. Up until the end of the toddler tunnel, is just kind of relentless, like rowing a boat in a stormy waters. And if you don't have the tools to be able to notice how well you're doing, I think you can carry on that kind of depletion further down the line as well. It's really about building up a sort of toolkit of resources, things that you can draw on when you are low, so that when you're feeling good, you can make the most of feeling good and you can take that strength through for when you're in the more challenging circumstances. It's really hard.
0: Yeah, the lack of sleep, thank <laughs> <God>. <laughs> So when you're exhausted and depleted, what are the tools? Will you flip through the book and pick up some tools or do you have them to your fingertips now? My number
1: one absolute go-to tool is always breathing. Because I I always notice when I'm reaching that capacity point. So when I start to feel like everything's too much, it's like a log jam. I'm much more able to notice now when I'm getting to that point so before I'm actually at the lockdown when I'm kind of floating towards it what will be your physical just get specific so for me I get a lot more sweary in my head (laughs) that's the number one (laughs) so things like if I'm putting on Freddy's socks and they're not getting on properly and I'll be like that's the first thing I sort of think right okay my inner swear monster starts becoming a lot more vocal and it's when I actually verbalize that swearing that's when I think okay so I I remember once when I had my second baby, that was a real kind of logjam moment because my first was three and he was really at that lovely toddler stage, preschool stage, where suddenly he has an opinion about everything. And so getting out of the house, which is always a logistical problem when you've got a baby, suddenly became a kind of emotional problem as well, where he didn't want to go out the house or he didn't want to put his coat on. Or I started getting this anger rising up in me of like, you know, anger being a response to when you're goals are being blocked or your control is sort of being taken away from you and I remember once I used to have this buggy but it's very flimsy when it comes to pavements and stuff and I had a board on it and Morris was on the board and I was pushing the buggy and I was trying to get up a pavement and it basically completely tipped over <laughs> <laughs> so the buggy tipped over slightly and you know no one fell out or anything but I was like effing buggy and morris said to me it's not an effing buggy mummy it's a buggy and i was like oh, just hearing him say the f word my blood ran cold and i was like right okay that was my first hint of the fact that actually this logjam of having two and the logistics and the kind of emotional tumult of that Whenever I feel that sweary monster coming into my mind, I know that I have to just stop. I always envisage a kind of pause button mm-hmm. and I literally stop what I'm doing, whatever it is, and I just take a breath. So I take a breath in through the nose for a count of five and I just sigh out for a count of 10 or even 11, like a really long exhalation. The longer your exhalation, the deeper your inhalation. So you can really kind of channel that full, wide, low into the back of the ribcage breath which stops that fight or flight response that you start to have, that very stressful need to run away. And it's when I take that full breath that you kind of start to feel the waters becoming less choppy and I feel like I have to take responsibility in that moment to take that action. So for me, it's always the breath. And then secondly, it's kind of being able to soften the body. So I notice that I tend to really bring any tension up around my shoulders come up around the ears i'm clenching my jaw i'm probably frowning and it's that physical response which you don't even sometimes notice when you're kind of grimacing oh no morris often will say "Mummy, why are you making that face and i realise that you know my face is naturally quite concentratedly a sort of bitchy resting face but when i'm stressed if i'm putting his shoes on and he's not wanting to put them on i do get this kind of frowny face only once has he echoed that back to me but now I sort of think wow that's an external sort of validation of how stressed I'm feeling I know that this fight or flight has a very physical response for me so I soften my shoulders down and I imagine kind of lengthening the crown of the head up towards the ceiling and it is that pausing moment those are the two things that I do in the moment often like yesterday for example at the moment I'm coming out of a run of Freddie not sleeping at all and he's nearly three and he's still breastfeeding which is one of these open to lots of judgment kind of things in life and so I'm feeling very depleted in terms of like I haven't had a full night's sleep I can't actually remember the last time and physically probably quite depleted because I'm still breastfeeding and you know I always to my new mums and pilates say you know make sure you're drinking enough water make sure you're nourishing yourself you're feeding your baby and sometimes I forget to apply those same rules to myself because he's a toddler I don't consider that to be breastfeeding It's a different kind of ritual for him. It's a soothing, it's a comfort thing rather than a nutrition thing, although obviously it is as well. So yesterday I was walking to school run, Freddie in the buggy, it was raining. I was feeling really like, ugh. and I just sort of said out loud to myself, you're exhausted and you're still breastfeeding and it's okay to be feeling this way. I always label it in the moment. It's a really useful, powerful tool actually to kind of articulate vocalise how you're feeling and say it's okay I'm feeling exhausted you know it's okay I haven't drunk a glass of water this morning I haven't had any lunch or you know it's when you notice these things that are very simple fundamental self-care things that suddenly slip off your list because you've got other things to do or you've got other things to think about so those are my sort of in the moment when I feel that I need something to snap me out of a kind of slightly swirly negative spiral. And there's a sort of avalanche. You're sitting at the bottom of an avalanche of lots of negative things that you're allowing to happen to you. And if you can pull yourself out of that moment and sort of soften the emotional charge suddenly, breaking the emotional charge, breathing, verbalising, softening and lengthening the body, those are my in-the-moment go-tos. Slightly longer term or bigger go-tos are I'm such a big fan of gratitude lists. I think it's such a powerful force for kind of fostering a much more positive outlook about what your circumstances are so I think when you're in a negative spiral it's very easy to carry on down that spiral without even considering what you're doing so you gather momentum and you start foraging for other things that are pissing you off or you know other things that are going wrong at that moment whereas if you can catch yourself and just start to notice even the smallest or especially the smallest things that make a difference in your day a nice hot cup of tea you know, nowadays, especially in the winter and in the rain, I do very often every day are thankful for the roof above my head. You know, like these things that we do tend to take for granted. We're always looking for, oh, why have I not got a bigger house? Why am I not more successful? Why am I not more of this, more of that? You know, and actually we need to notice a bit more what we do have and how good things are, because then you can start to do more of that or you can just be a bit more content. And I think we're very easily not content in modern society and also for me gratitude lists but definitely yoga and pilates or just movement doesn't have to be labeled yoga and pilates Mm. but that's what i happen to do if i haven't moved and it's linked with the breathing it's linked with the softening and lengthening the body i really notice it and what i notice with my clients so i teach pilates and i notice that you know people will come to class and they're feeling even just their demeanor is a little bit Squashed, So you can see the stress literally sitting on their shoulders and they're like, oh, you know, I've got this going on and that, but I've got this really painful neck, but they don't make the connection between their mental circumstances or what's going on in terms of their stress and their to-do list and the fact that their neck is kind of going, hello, I think actually you might need to sort of soften me and lengthen me a little bit. We've lost that sort of intuitive mind-body or just life-body connection. I think we sort of take our bodies for granted you need to listen to what your body is asking you to do. And often your body is asking you to just breathe and rest yeah. and move and fully kind of appreciate how wonderful it is and how much it helps you and carries you around like a loyal donkey every day, you know. So for me, I, moving my body is absolutely up there on my self care toolkit. And being in green spaces, I think for me, that's a really necessary one. When I'm feeling a bit hemmed in or a bit negative, or even just stressed or anxious, not quite sure if there's something I need to change and I'm not quite sure what it is or worrying about work, a walk in the park just is always a tonic for me. I think it's one of those really important and also undervalued parts of human existence that you really do need, that forest bathing, that connection with your natural environment to, again, lift you out of your emotional response and lift you out of that kind of being in your head too much and worrying and thinking, just be in your body and notice your physical response to sort of looking at a tree and looking at the sky and breathing slightly fresher air in <laughs>
0: London, you know. It's always easy. Yeah, exactly. central London. <laughs> yeah. I read that somewhere I can't remember where the quickest way out of our heads is to look at something not man-made. Yeah, it's so true, yeah. It helps me tap into the vastness of it oh, all. Oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. And actually puts things in perspective really mm. easily for me especially trees like it sounds so hippie doesn't it it's kind of a bit wee wee but <laughs> you know some of them will be hundreds know, if not thousands incredible. of years yeah. old and you know they'll outlive all of us yeah there is a majesty
1: there is this sort of awe-inspiring Majesty of trees. This could be a tree hugging podcast. Yeah, we've gone,
0: hugger. we've gone tree
1: hugging. It was inevitable with us too. I do love hugging trees. Oh, like it was hilarious. We took them to Greenwich Park, which has the most beautiful, immense trees. Great for a tree hugging. Yeah, and I was like, there was this tree. It was so big, I couldn't even get my arms around it. And I was like, oh. And Ben said, "This is your happy place, isn't it?" He was like, "Yeah." When I know that, whenever there's a big old tree. You're going to be happy. Yeah. It's, it's I think that's, you know, <laughs> it is something that you probably don't think is important. The more we are in the city, the more we need to tap into that kind of connection to life that's outside mankind's mm. sort of creation. You know, we this is something that's much bigger than us and we rely on it in such a mm. huge way that we just we need totally to we need agree. to honor it a lot I, more
0: i think rushing around the city you know i notice it there's so many opportunities to avoid myself at any yeah. moment of any day there's no oh, gosh yeah. you know life will shake me to wake mm-hmm, me which mm-hmm.
1: is what happened to me well it's like but Humber hit was said you know in those moments it's like pushing a beach ball under the sea you can hold it under yeah the, under the water for as yeah. long as you like but it's
0: always going to come and bounce back up to the surface and the longer you and push it you know, the harder yeah. you push it down those feelings and and that's why you know I love the book and I love what you were talking about because I think sometimes there's perception that we have to go on a silent retreat for three months. And it's not, it's really just those micro decisions yeah. that stack on top of each other to stop that spiral downwards. In perfectly doing that. Because obviously yeah. not every time we can't catch those every time. As I was reading the book, I was thinking, how do we give, you know, ourselves and, and other mums more of these tools? Yeah. So we've just got the choice. Yeah. Because I think what my journey and my trainings and everything it's given me is a choice in the Mm. moment. Whereas Mm. before I didn't have a choice. I didn't actually know what to do to get me out. So then I'd push an easy button, which would be TV, biscuit, drink, you know, something. to anaesthetising kind of things that you do to just
1: dull rather than move forward. Yeah. It's so true. The first thing you need to do before you can access any of these tools that are available is to notice what's happening and it's as you say like I think there's always something that happens to trigger a big self-awareness journey and for me it was my best friend died when we were 28 it was unexpected as an accident and I think after that moment there's a very definite tipping point for me where I kind of realized how precious life is you know you kind of take it for granted until something like that whips the rug out from underneath you I mean it's taken me a long time to fully capitalize on the understanding that I've built but this was the moment where I realized that there are self-sabotaging things that you do that make you not live the life that you could be living, but it's a comfort zone, so you don't think of pushing out of it. And yet, because it's a comfort zone, you don't realise that actually it is in that pushing out that's where you can find something that's just so much better if the caterpillar was too frightened to push out of its cocoon it wouldn't ever become a butterfly but i think it's until you have some kind of trigger for realizing that you need to assess and notice what you're doing and notice your comfort zone and realize actually it's not very comfortable comfort zone <laughs> you're not particularly happy that you have the power to change it so i always used to just assume i was a bit rubbish at social situations I always had this feeling that people didn't really like me very much never did I kind of think that a this was a kind of manifestation of anxiety a social anxiety I just thought it was me I thought that was the way that I am so then the learning that it was actually a sort of form of depression and anxiety realizing that actually you have the power to change the way that you feel about the world and that you assume people are viewing you because that's all you're projecting how people are viewing you, you know, you're viewing yourself the way that you think that they are. And learning with a bit of discipline, you have the ability to change and really challenge the way that you respond to things and you act and it is challenging and it's scary and it's difficult, but it is possible. Mm. There are two people who've said things that really kind of informed the way that I've being able to kind of change my view of the world. One is Emma Cannon, who's a fertility expert, and she's an amazing guru on all things fertility and women's health. And I remember she said to me that it takes discipline. You know, it's very easy to allow yourself to just sort of run on the negative train and be propelled by it and carried along with it without considering that actually you can get off, but it involves jumping off. It involves actively taking hold and noticing what's going on in your mind and thinking... I can stop this. I don't have to just be sort of carried along by this avalanche. And the other was actually listening to your podcast with Lucy Sheridan. She said something which was so revelatory. I actually kind of gasped. And she said, you know, it's not other people's responsibility to make you feel comfortable or happy or welcome in social situations necessarily that made me realize that actually so many times in a social situation or in a kind of just in any kind of friendship relationship i'm quite shy i guess and guarded and i sort of put the onus on the other person to pull me out of that by welcoming go how are you doing and you know come over here whereas actually you could take responsibility for that and be I'm here, hi, you know, and that's the scary option. That's the challenging pulling yourself out of your comfort zone option. But that's where the positive growth will happen. It's just realising that actually, you know, everyone is feeling a little bit scared sometimes and not allowing yourself to think, oh, it's just me. I'm just not very good. I'm not good in these situations. I don't react very well. All these kind of core beliefs that you've built up over your life, Mm -hmm. which are fact to you. They're your internal soundtrack you've been listening to you know it's that kind of critical fm that's going on you don't think to change the channel and listen to a different station because that's the way your brain is sort of trying to keep you safe from harm yeah and it is scary trying to think that you could change that but discipline and taking responsibility it's not an easy option I think that's but it's the magical option and I think it's
0: so important I'm so happy that you raise this because being in the worlds that we inhibit you know this self-development well-being spiritual world I think there's such a wave of change going on which I'm embracing and I love it but I think it's not talked about enough how hard it is Mm. you know here's a new book about x you know read this and it'll be fine yeah I remember when I was 24 early in my 12-step recovery and I never knew about inner critic. That was a new thing to me. I believed all the thoughts in my head. And someone said to me, which was my game changer, 99% of what your head tells you is utter bullshit. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) So I'm walking down the road thinking, I'm not good enough. That person looked at me funny. I look rubbish today. I'm not good at my job. It was a ticker tape, like you say, critical FM. And someone said that to me. it was petrifying because I was like, hang on a minute, all of this that I've built up about myself, you know, it's going on constantly, I was advised to challenge it. So Mm. when one of those thoughts came in, challenge it. It was exhausting. Yeah. Probably the most exhausted I've been, apart from them having a baby. <laughs> but, you know, exhausting because it was like you say, you know, I think about it like a vinyl. Yeah. These well grooved yeah. tracks and trying to change those, I found physically and mentally exhausting. Obviously, the best thing I've ever done. Mm. And then replacing those with yeah. just challenging them to start with. And I loved what you said about awareness is the first step and I would add in non-judgmental awareness yeah absolutely just yeah, seeing, exactly. seeing where we're at yeah without judgment oh isn't that interesting yeah I'm always really hard on myself Yeah, rather than kind of going oh god I'm such so, an idiot because so you know? hard on myself and <laughs> yeah. then of course judging ourselves yeah. for a critic which of course yeah. isn't in a critic it's easy to get in that spiral yeah. too and I think that's the thing you realize that
1: any positive desire that your brain might have to fight this constant negative internal dialogue if you think about how relentless that internal dialogue is any positivity is just going to give up and go home because it's like there's too much to fight i can't fight this fire Mm. so you won't have built up the kind of internal resilience and also for me it's not just noticing it in your mind I mean, that was just absolutely revelatory to me to actually catch my internal dialogue. I think journaling is the next stage because when you offload it, and especially if you wince when you read the words because you think this is what I'm saying to myself every single day, every minute of the day. And when you see it in black and white and you think, would I say any of this stuff to my best friend or even someone I don't particularly know on the street or even someone I don't really like, you wouldn't because it's just so deeply painful and hurtful that you just wouldn't be that mean. And whereas you're quite happily sort of merrily being mean to yourself Mm. constantly, it's not quite the same. But I remember reading Eric Franklin. He's a movement specialist and he talks about um, dynamic posture and he's just wonderful. His books are amazing. And I was reading one of his books about kind of dynamic postural awareness. And he said very simply, when you have a negative thought about your body, every single cell in your body responds to that and I had this image of this sort of army of cells who are just wanting to do the best and they're just wanting to help you along your life with one sort of fell sweep, you're going well you're all rubbish and they're all like oh and so every single cell in your body takes on board those words it's so powerful so you know it has an, inf- an impact not only on your kind of emotional well-being but your physical your physicality as well your posture is probably stooped you're probably literally squashing your rib cage therefore Mm. squashing your heart center your lungs you know you're not making the most of the potential for your physical and mental well-being by just constantly allowing yourself to be beaten down but i think the noticing is the most powerful and the most scary thing because once you've kind of done that the responsibility is then on you to change it If you do have your core beliefs that you're not good enough or you're not popular or anything that you don't even realise is on your kind of internal manifesto of who you are, it's very ingrained who we are, things that we're shining a light on. And so they won't want to be thrown off their throne. You know, they want to stay there. They will look around for evidence to justify them being there. I'm very much more aware and I do catch my inner critic consciously now. It's almost like a kind of little alarm that rings immediately as soon as I get a negative kind of internal dialogue going along. But even with that trigger in place, you do need to actively push back and sort of, know I am good enough. And your brain will start looking for evidence to the contrary, though. It will say, well, actually, the other day, you know, when you did the school run, lots of the mums didn't say hello to you, or you haven't got any work recently, or all these things, they will seek evidence to keep the core belief in place. And it takes a lot of work to keep pushing back. But ultimately, as you say, it's a different groove on the vinyl that you need to create. And once you've got that groove going and you're on that one, it's much easier to stay there. It's just creating a new path that takes all the hard work. But once you've done it, it's like correcting your posture. You know, your body is really comfortable slouched on the sofa and it may have been that way for years and years. So once you start to realign your spine. It feels really odd. It doesn't feel right. You know, and often in Pilates classes I'll kind of adjust someone's posture or adjust their alignment and they're like, Oh, that feels weird and they go back immediately to what they were doing. It's like, well no, if you want to start creating better habits, you need to get used to how that feels and try and imprint it in your body and you'll then start to feel more normal and natural in it. And it's the same in your mind. It feels so weird at first to be positive about yourself. It feels really kind of un British, I guess. And also as women we're sort of societally taught to be unhappy with ourselves and oh my tummy's really big or I don't have the right colour hair and all this kind of stuff that's the societal soundtrack again that we're also kind of having to fight against once you just find a little bit of confidence within yourself with a slightly more positive internal dialogue and you then start externally showing signs of that as well and being happy to take compliments or being happy to Sort of ring your own bell a little bit and, you know, voice your skills or voice the things that you're good at. It does have a positive momentum as well, like a kind of positive snowball.
0: Yeah, it goes the other way, doesn't it? And there was a study, I think it was about 10 years ago, where up until only 10 years ago, we thought that our neural pathways were set at the age of five or something. And there was this new study, which I can't quote the name of, but I'm sure it's out there on Google, (laughs) which discovered that actually there's neuroplasticity, which means that we can rewire our brains. And this is why I'm like a meditation crazy Mm. promoter and it's my go-to tool because that is the one thing which is proven to help us in our efforts to rewire our negative thinking and those grooves. yeah and i
1: find that just it blew my mind learning about that but i find also that that's the challenge that people You probably get this a lot, because I certainly do. When you talk about meditation, the image of meditation, people Mm -hmm. think I have to sit like a Buddha with a serene smile across my face. Have no thoughts. Yeah, have no thoughts. (laughs) And I will basically have a clear mind and it'll be all fine. And then they're like, oh God, but all of this stuff starts coming into my mind. Therefore, I can't meditate. I'm rubbish at it. And it's like, well, no, that is what happens. It's like kind of taking this rug out now and shaking it out. There will be a hell of a lot of dust in that rug it's the same process for your brain it's allowing the dust to be shaken out it's something that is an ongoing practice as well it's you know you have to kind of you know we're human we, we always want to take the easy option therefore meditation people just think well I can't do it so I'm not going to do it because I don't have that clear mind therefore it's not for me it's yeah like, well actually no one has a clear mind yeah exactly the point of meditation is to allow these thoughts to froth up and bubble away and pass and just be aware of them and allow that kind of space to happen in the dust you know after you've dusted
0: a lot of people say that to me that sitting meditation is just one form of meditation and for me you know it probably needs a rebrand even mindfulness for me it's just understanding the nature of my mind yeah which if I don't understand that I'm basically screwed because it means I'm at the mercy of whatever crap my head throws at me which most the time is negative so actually it's just getting to know my mind a bit however I choose to do that whether it's walking the buggy and noticing those thoughts Mm. coming up or like you say moving with my breath and yoga or pilates or doing sitting meditation Mm. which some people do do that
1: if I do have a moment still in bed I just take my hands onto my belly and breathe and that's my meditative kind of five minutes hopefully but and even five minutes
0: is valuable, you know, even two minutes. Well let's actually, say sixty like, seconds you know, like, yeah. can start to rewire. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. Especially for us mums. Yeah, exactly. We <laughs> could do sixty seconds. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> the thing. I think we kind of feel like you have to commit to half
1: an hour or, or things that seem unrealistic goals when you have children or even when you don't have children, all our time is allocated. Externally, by things that we think are important, and actually, it's sort of carving out the time. What's the saying, you know, everyone should do 20 minutes unless you feel you don't have time, in which case you need to do an hour? Yeah, unless
0: you're busy and then it's an hour. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I can't remember who said that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so important. I think because we have this lovely, amazing technology in the palm of our hand that has revolutionized so many things and made so many things much better, has also allowed us as you say to just be distracted from our actual lives you know as John Lennon said life is what happens when you're busy making other plans you know this palm of our hand tablet phone whatever you have has taken your life to all corners of the world (laughs) immediately Mm. within a second to all sorts of judgments opinions news information we still have the same brain that we had Basically, as a caveman, but certainly, you know, 100 years ago, we had much more kind of natural stimulus in terms of lighting, in terms of the sort of your body clock would go with the seasons a lot more. Mm. We had the opinions of our neighbours and the people physically around us. We certainly didn't have the opinion of Donald Trump at 3am, which was the same anxiety, the same physical response to these things. But now, because we don't have a natural cutoff, so we're Mm. always bombarded Mm. with this stress stimulus. And so that can mean you're living 100% of the time in your fight or flight mode because you're just constantly worrying. Our brain is there to keep us safe from harm. Hopefully, as a prehistoric man, our brain helped us not to be eaten by whatever predator might be around the corner. But it means now, even though, you know, hopefully in the modern life that we live here, certainly, we're not under threat from predator if you take away the sort of nuclear war threat that's currently in the news, but we're not day to day under threat by a predator, and yet we have the same physical response yeah. to any kind of stress as as if we were just about to be eaten by a lion. So we're like those kind of zebras grazing in the grasslands. We're kind of constantly like, oh, uh, hang on, there's a lion. Oh no, I'll just graze. Oh no, hang on, there's a lion. And yet we're not under that physical threat. Yeah. But unless you take yourself out of that fight or flight mode, then your body constantly builds up this physical... And we don't even notice it. And we don't notice that you can press pause. And simply by breathing deeply, you come into your rest or digest. You trigger the parasympathetic nervous system, which is going to soften and soothe and allow you to just, you know, slow down. And unless you do that all of your mental resources, all of your emotional responses and your kind of thoughts are going to be on that fight or flight, something's trying to kill me mode. And I think that's the problem. We don't realise that even things like just carrying your phone with you constantly and always thinking, oh, just check an email, I might have to respond to that message, is a manifestation of that fight or flight. It's that I have to, you know, always be on, on it. And actually, it's all right. I think we've really lost sight of the fact or we haven't ever seen the fact that it's actually okay not to always be alert we need to allow ourselves time to just soften into ourselves and be a little bit so
0: i wanted to ask you actually what the relationship is like with your phone because obviously we met through instagram you know we'll message the call on instagram there's a community of us you know in this sort of well-being motherhood world and you know we're on it you know i've been listening to the ariana huffington podcasts called Thrive and oh, she's all, to that they're actually. really yeah. good she's talking to lots of really successful people about their relationship with their phone and technology and it's really got me thinking mm. about it does your phone come upstairs with you? No so
1: I leave my phone I have a curfew of nine o'clock occasionally I finish teaching at nine and I do check my phone after that but I put my phone on to charge at nine o'clock at night and I leave it down in the kitchen and I don't check it until I take it with me on the school run My policy basically is I don't ever want my children to feel like I'm always looking at a screen rather than looking at them. You know, if you're walking down the road with your boyfriend or your partner or your friend and you were just the two of you and they had their phone and they were looking at their phone, you'd feel a bit annoyed about that. Yeah, It's it's like, um, sorry, that's, you know, this is kind of motherhood, the instinctive judgy reaction. But when I see a mum walking with her child holding hands, not pushing buggy it's slightly different because I feel like if there's no eye contact, it feels slightly like different. But when you're walking with your child, the child must feel always secondary to that phone in your hand. Now, I need to lift out of that judgy response because I don't know what that mum is checking. My instinctive reaction is that I feel like this phone is a blockage to human connection. I do hugely feel like the positive effects of it are myriads. I mean, I first time round with Morris, so Morris is six now, six and a half There wasn't this social media community. So I've always had quite a toxic relationship with Facebook. It's always left me feeling a bit, well, so I've had Facebook, but that wasn't a positive nurturing thing when I had a newborn or, or, you know, throughout the early motherhood years. But when Freddie was born, so he's going to be three tomorrow, it was the sort of rise of the more honest motherhood type accounts, which is now opened up a huge self-care and mental health awareness community which is incredible and it's definitely opened friendship horizons it's definitely been a hugely positive thing for me the social media thing but also it's the noticing because so many people I know sort of do the whole scrolling thing and feeling a bit icky but not putting the phone down at that point or not being aware that they're feeling the kind of comparison trap of like oh I don't have that lovely amazing house that that person on Instagram is showing me the best sides of and we lose sight of the fact that we're seeing this very curated best of show showreel we're not always seeing the realities and we're just seeing a snapshot you know and I think when I notice myself getting into that slightly negative comparison side of social media sometimes I actually delete the app If I notice any kind of reaction in me that isn't positive, I just think, right, okay, now it's time. Mm. And I'm just very conscious of trying not to be on my phone at all when I'm with my kids, which also means, as a kind of sad side effect, that now I don't really take any photos of them because I used to just always be taking photos all the time. But actually, I noticed that certainly in the last few months, I've got hardly any pictures of Morris and Freddie on my phone anymore because I'm so conscious of taking my phone out. You know, I use social media for my work as well, and it's an amazing way of connecting with people. But I do think there's a kind of thoughtless negative side of it. And I do worry a little bit about what it's doing in terms of social connection like this. Occasionally on a Sunday afternoon, for example, you know, the boys might be watching TV and I'll be on my phone and Ben's on his phone. And I kind of look up and I see that we're all on individual screens. I'm like, okay, that doesn't sit well with me. I don't feel comfortable with that. And I guess it's what you feel comfortable with. But I kind of feel like we need to be conscious of the reliance on screens and be conscious of what our children are seeing. Like when I saw this woman picking up her toddler from preschool, we all know how what that's like and stuff. But she was walking down the road on her phone, holding the hand of her little two-year-old and her two-year-old dropped a load of stuff on the ground, like her bag or something. And the mum didn't notice for a bit and carried on walking. And I nearly went, excuse me. I got quite uppity in my mind because I was like, your two-year-old needs you to have your focus on them. And I think it's just that we don't, know what it looks like when you're with your child actually looking at your phone instead of being present with your child it's quite a powerful image that like your phone is more important than your child and i think for me i'm mean, going to talk about it in the book actually that one of the first times i noticed that was when my dad was around here when morris was about 18 months and he took a video of morris this video is lovely he's like talking and and i'm in the background sitting on the floor there and i'm just on my phone yeah, I'm not even yeah. looking. I was like, oh my God, that's awful. And in the moment I hadn't noticed that that's what I was doing. I thought I was there and present, but it made me realise that if you've got your phone in your hand and you're looking at your phone, you're not present. You're not, you know, we feel like we have to multitask all the time. And that mum yesterday was probably just answering an email. Like I totally get that. You're probably just instantly feeling you need to get back to someone, but maybe we need to pull that back and think, I don't need to get back to that person you know because if you're with your child and on your phone you're not going to be doing either justice you're not going to be writing a particularly good email but you're also not going to be shepherding your child particularly effectively so in order to do any one thing well it needs to have your full focus and I think that's what phones have created this sort of lack of full focus you know lack of attention which is yeah quite sort of Dangerous is a very strong word, but I think it's something we need to be really cautious about and educate kids about school. I really hope there's, you know, a kind of awareness of the effects, the pull of the phone, the vortex, you know, trying not to be pulled into that vortex and being aware of
0: when you are. I think it's just become a really easy, I notice it in myself, disconnection tool. So I I notice now if an uncomfortable thought or feeling comes up, one of my first instincts actually is to grab for my phone. Yeah. Because it's just a really simple way just to disconnect from that, just to numb it. And like you were saying, I think it's just about being conscious and, you know, dare I say it, mindful Mm. of that. And I can catch myself sometimes. Sometimes I don't catch myself and then I'll be, you know, knee deep in an Instagram going, oh, God, it was because I had that thought about... You know, that's why this stuff is so important because there's only ever going to be ever increasing opportunities for us in this modern way that we live for us to do that. Mm. And I think it's a really interesting point. And I've had a lot of people
1: who are sort of within my circle of mums or whatever say to me that they've got my book. And I'll say, oh, you know, what have you been thinking? Because there's one particular who I know suffers really, really badly or from anxiety and I said to her recently what have you felt about the book have you felt like it's been useful and she went oh it's on my bedside table but I haven't been reading it and then she went on to say that she wasn't sleeping very well but completely unlinked in her mind was the fact that she she I don't sleep very well so I'm on my phone until about two o'clock in the morning but I then still can't sleep it's like okay stop (laughs) a your phone shouldn't be in your bedroom. B, if you're not sleeping, put the phone away. That's why you're not sleeping. You know, your phone is never going to be a lovely kind of soothing magnesium salt bath scented candle ritual to help you ease yourself into slumber. You know, sleep is quite a challenging state to get your body into. And it's a really deeply restorative, necessary state that we need. It was really interesting for me that she said that she had my book on her bedside table. She wasn't sleeping. So she reached for the phone. And this is like every night, And she's wondering why she's not sleeping. Mm. And I said to her, you know, very gently, I was like, I just think maybe think about putting your phone away in a different room. Apart from anything else, the kind of electrical charge of having it near you, even if psychologically you know it's near you, who knows what your phone is emanating in terms of its electrical charge. But I said to her, you know, the book is designed to be used unless you read it and kind of take from it the activities that are aimed at overturning those kind of unhelpful habits that we have those unhelpful behaviors and mental health grooves that we go down without even sort of considering that they're there if you don't actually use the book and don't read it it's not going to help you it's that kind of as you said earlier you know there are lots of books around mm. but unless you use them and unless you do the work and do the work sounds really hard but it's kind of true I used to live in Japan and I had this particular student who was about 18 and his mum and dad had bought him English conversation lessons. I think that his parents thought they'd bought the English, so he should be speaking English. And I remember the mum kind of complained to the school. She said, he's not speaking any English. You know, I've paid all this money, he's not speaking English. And it's like, well, he wasn't practicing. So he would come, literally, it was the most awkward class I've ever had in my life. He would sit opposite me and be completely silent and he wanted to do writing stuff but he wouldn't interact with me in any way at all and it was really really interesting because it's like well no language of all things is one of these things you have to immerse yourself you have to do you have to practice you have to it's quite scary practicing a foreign language and you know and speaking in a different language it's really terrifying it's exactly the same thing with this it's sort of challenging your core beliefs or taking yourself out of that comfort zone but unless you do it you're never going to find the magic that's at the other end Yeah, it's so interesting. And
0: there's the stat, isn't there, that only 2% of books that are bought are finished. You know, and someone else said to me, you know, a few years ago, and I was probably trying to read about five self-development books a week and (laughs) go to every Hay House workshop that they ever did. Someone said, don't be a self-development tourist. You don't need more information or more stuff. You need to start applying it more. And that's where I really got the idea of this daily practice Mm. and actually it's like we've been talking about, you know, it's what I do in the moment and every day that matters, not how many books I've read or how many workshops I've been on or how many courses I go to. Yeah,
1: because otherwise if if you do it just becomes noise, doesn't it? If it's not something that you focus and it's the attention thing as well. Like we, you know, it's really hard to focus your attention and not be distracted by your phone or by your to-do list. But that's why I mean I feel that the things in the book you can dip in and out. It's not that you have to read it in one go or every night read it solidly, but you do have to read it with focus and with attention and actually explore what it means for you. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to give you any answers unless you use the tools on yourself. It's almost you know? like
0: a coach in your pocket, isn't it? Because yeah. I've had lots yeah. of coaches and lots of therapists, and you know, and a lot of the exercises through the book I've yeah. been asked to do by a coach. Yeah. And I think just maybe doing one or two of the exercises yeah. in here could you could even pref- just do ten minutes
1: a day or every other day and it would still have a really powerful massively word
0: yeah. some of them are deep and yeah. profound and you know if you're going to write a letter to your future self yeah. you know, that exercise in itself could have the potential to totally shift yeah. some of your day-to-day experiences so i think it's such an amazing resource and just before we wrap up i ask everyone the same question at the end this. yes a big <laughs> question <laughs> which is if you could give all the mums out there one thing what like does it mean? yeah luxury. it is yeah <laughs> okay a kind of jokey one first of all it's
1: not really jokey is I would just give 10 minutes of solace and space
0: oh, that's just, not jokey like, that's lovely you know,
1: I think all mums need is a bit of space whether that's physical space to be on their own without babies or children climbing on them and mm. the other day I was sitting here and Morris was literally grabbing my hair like this and Freddie was like on my boob. And I was just like, (laughs) I used to be able to kind of sit in my own space and, you know, have that kind of personal space again and headspace, I think. Give the gift of being able to declutter your mind, rake the leaves of your mind and actually get to the grass, the soil and just be able to kind of understand who you are. But I think on top of that space, I think just, you know, the gift of, self-compassion I think we just don't put ourselves even remotely on our lists we don't even think that it's important to think about what we need and that's not in a martyry way I think it just doesn't occur to us sometimes that actually we need to be kind to ourselves in order to make better decisions about our mothering or about our lives you know we need to actually see ourselves through kinder lenses It's so hard to do that. And I think just giving that as a gift to everyone, imagine what you can unlock if everyone just suddenly woke up and they had that self-compassion inbuilt, ready to go, you know, rather than having to kind of delve deeply and unearth it. Just have it there.
0: Oh, I'd like that. <laughs> yeah, if you That's could just get yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy with my gift. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Well, we, for I just me. loved it. It was brilliant. And I think I was going to say I feel so sort of sad that I'm wrapping this up. But it's been an hour, and I'm sort of you know aware of busy mums' time. Yes, but um, I do have to go and get Freddie. Actually, yeah, yeah don't leave your child at preschool. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed the episode please check out my instagram where we continue the conversation and i post daily about all things motherhood and well-being also if you haven't already have a look at my website because i've been writing more and more blogs and i'm also putting on there all the events and talks that i'm giving and of course if you haven't then please do have a listen to some of the other episodes because i'm chatting to some really incredible women that i'd love for you to enjoy And if you did enjoy it, then please, please leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. So thank you very much.